0: Welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Father God, as we come together today, we thank you. We ask, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts in new and powerful ways from your Word. It is in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. As we began to study what has come to be known as the second missionary journey of Paul, we noted just how sensitive he and his companions were to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Though they tried to go into Asia and Bithynia, God redirected them to Troas, and it was from there that they set out for Macedonia in response to a vision Paul had of a man who called to them for help. After planting a church in the city of Philippi, the band of missionaries journeyed to the Macedonian capital city of Thessalonica, about a hundred miles away. This Greek city, with its excellent harbor, was also on a major highway that drew traders from far and wide, which made it an ideal place for the spread of the gospel. We pick up the text in Acts 17 verse 1. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ, the Messiah, had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. Unlike Philippi, the Jewish population of Thessalonica was large enough to warrant a synagogue, and as he had done so many times before, Paul began there preaching the good news about Jesus Christ each Sabbath for the first three weeks of his stay. Using the Old Testament scriptures that those at the synagogue would have been so familiar with, Paul began to prove that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And because the Jewish people had so long expected their Messiah to be a political leader— Paul also explained that those same scriptures revealed that the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead. He was so persuasive in his arguments that some of the Jews, as well as a large number of God-fearing Greeks and many prominent women of the city, believed his message. Unfortunately, as had happened so many times before, Luke reveals in verse 5 that opposition quickly emerged. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here and jason has welcomed them into his house they are all defying caesar's decrees saying that there is another king one called jesus when they heard this the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil then they made jason and the others post bond and let them go The Jews of the city were so angry at Paul's success in winning people to Christ that they stooped to the lowest methods possible to put a stop to his preaching. They stirred up the mob, causing a riot in the city, and because Paul and Silas were apparently Jason's guests, they stormed his house in search of them. Not finding them there, the crowd then dragged Jason and his friends before the magistrates in frustration and claimed that Jason was responsible for welcoming troublemakers into his home who were encouraging the people to revolt against Rome and its emperor. They knew that their charge was a lie, but they were willing to do anything to silence the missionaries. Although Thessalonica was part of the Roman Empire, they were what was known as a free city. In other words, they were able to govern themselves with little to no interference from Rome, and they intended to keep it that way. Upon hearing the charges that Jason had welcomed insurrectionists into his home, the officials were so deeply troubled they imposed a bond upon Jason and the others. This type of bond, or peace bond as it was sometimes called, was a large sum of money that was taken from Jason and the other believers as a guarantee that Paul and Silas would leave the city and never return. If the mission ever did come back, the amount of the bond would be forfeit, and likely Jason and the others would lose their homes and their livelihoods. When Paul later wrote to the church at Thessalonica, he seemed to see this bond as being Satan's strategy to stop him from visiting them, saying in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2.18 that he wanted to come to them again and again, but that Satan prevented him. Accordingly, as soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. Under cover of darkness, Paul and Silas slipped out of the city, heading to Berea, which was 60 miles to the east. Luke describes the Bereans as having a hunger for and an openness to the message that Paul preached. They eagerly investigated it, thought about it, probably discussed it among themselves and even asked questions of Paul. They were willing to do whatever it took to find the truth. And ultimately, many of them did believe, along with a large number of Greeks. With so many people coming to faith, word quickly got back to those in Thessalonica. Verse 13 When the Jews in Thessalonica heard that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join them as soon as possible. Once more, the Jews from Thessalonica tried to incite the crowd against Paul and his companions. Once more, Paul had to flee for his life, but the idea of abandoning his mission apparently never occurred to him. No matter what happened to Paul, no matter the risks he faced, he was determined to continue with the work that God had called him to. Accompanied by other believers, Paul separated from Silas and Timothy and headed to the coast where he boarded a ship for Athens Once safely there, those who had accompanied him returned to Berea with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him. Though Paul found himself alone in Athens, he was not inactive. He began to walk through the city, and Luke reveals in verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Athens was a city of many gods. In fact, it was said that there were more statues of gods in Athens than in all of the rest of Greece combined. Some even joked that in Athens it was easier to meet a god than it was to meet a man. Seeing such idol worship greatly distressed Paul, and so he began to preach, not only in the synagogue, but also in the marketplace as well. Day after day he would speak with whoever happened to be there. Actually, Paul had no difficulty in finding people who were willing to talk, and soon the philosophers discovered him. Verse 18 A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Athens had long been a center for learning, and Luke tells us that all who lived there liked nothing more than to listen to and talk about the latest ideas. Indeed, that may well have been why they worshipped so many different gods in their city, Driven by their intellectual curiosity and pride of knowledge, they seemed willing to include any and every belief they could. It wasn't long before several philosophers approached Paul and began to debate him. Some were Epicureans and some were Stoics. These two groups followed very different ideas. The Epicureans believed that everything in life happened by chance. They believed that if any gods existed, they were remote and didn't care about what happened to mankind. They also believed that death was the end and that there was no possibility of life after death. They were very materialistic and their only goal in life was pleasure. Stoics, by comparison, were renowned for their personal discipline and self-control. They prided themselves on their ability to reason and on their self-sufficiency, and they did not believe that they needed help from any deity, though in contrast to the Epicureans, the Stoics believed in all of the gods." We can tell the arrogance of both groups, though, when they call Paul a babbler, which was a kind of small bird that picked up seeds off the marketplace floor. They implied that his ideas made no sense, as they'd been picked up from many places along the way, and that his words were no more meaningful than the chirping of a bird. But there was something about Paul's message of Christ and the resurrection that intrigued them. It sounded like a new idea, one they hadn't heard before, and so they immediately took him to the Areopagus. This was a place known as Mars Hill in English, and it was there that the greatest philosophers who watched over the religion and education in Athens gathered to discuss This was not a trial, but more of an informal meeting, and it was before these special judges that Paul was asked to give an explanation of what he believed. His ideas sounded strange to their ears, and they were anxious to make sense of the new teaching that he was presenting. Being brought before such honored experts might have intimidated anyone else, but Paul was never ashamed of the gospel of Christ, and he saw this as just another God-given opportunity to witness to others concerning the truth about Jesus. Verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus. He said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. Paul had been greatly disturbed by all the idol worship in Athens, and yet he begins by tactfully complimenting them on their desire to worship, and he reveals something he'd noticed on his walk through the city. Because they'd not wanted to cause offence by leaving out any one of the many gods people worshipped, they'd erected an altar inscribed with the words dedicating it to an unknown god. Paul told them that he was about to make that unknown god known to them. And he continues in verse 23 to introduce the living God to them. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said We are his offspring. Paul revealed God as the creator of everything. He who made the heavens and the earth didn't need mankind to build a temple for him to dwell in. God does not need our help, we need his, for he is the author of life itself. He had created Adam and from him brought the rest of mankind. Despite the fact that Greeks believed themselves superior to others, Paul declared that God had guided history. He was responsible for the rise and fall of nations in the past. And by his authority, he still directed the affairs of men even now. Paul revealed that God had created mankind and our world in such a way that we would instinctively want to know him. He did this in the hope that we would reach out for him and find him, though Paul states he is not difficult to find because he's not far from each one of us. In verse 28, Paul then strategically used two well-known quotations from their own poets in order to connect with them. He says, For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. He does this to prove that their own poets recognized that there was a creator who was the author and the sustainer of life, and that mankind was his offspring in the sense that God had given them life. Paul goes on in verse 29, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by men's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Paul wanted them to understand that it was the God they did not know, who was the creator and sustainer of life itself. Unlike the false gods they worshipped, this god was very different to his creation. He was nothing like the idols made from gold, silver or stone that adorned their city. Paul wanted them to know that God had overlooked their ignorance in the past. They'd done these things because they didn't know any better. But now that the message of Jesus Christ had come to them, their only hope for mercy was that all people repent. For there is a day of judgment coming to the world, and the one who will judge with justice on that day is Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate judge, and his resurrection from the dead was proof of that. Unfortunately, Neither the Epicureans nor the Stoics believed that resurrection from the dead was possible. And so, we're told in verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Here, we see that there were three different groups of people. There were the mockers, who cared nothing for the news of Jesus Christ. They were amused by Paul's message and dismissed it as Babel. There were also those who were interested but not ready to commit. They wanted to hear more, but were not ready to act on what they'd heard already. And the danger in that is that not making a decision is still making a decision. And finally, there was a very small group who actually believed. One was Dionysus, a recognized member of this elite council, and the other was a woman called Damaris, proving the appeal of the gospel to both men and women, people from all walks of life. We're not told how long Paul stayed in Athens, but Acts 18 reveals that after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, where he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So Paul moved south to Corinth, a very wealthy trading center which was well known at that time for its wickedness. I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure I would have picked Corinth as the obvious choice of where to go next, but Paul was willing to follow the Holy Spirit wherever he led him, even if that was into such an immoral place. It was there that Paul met Aquila and Priscilla, a couple who would become close friends of his in the years ahead. Originally from Pontus, this couple lived in Rome until the Emperor Claudius's decree drove all the Jews from that city, and they'd finally located in Corinth. Like Paul, they made tents, and so the three ended up working together to provide for their needs. At some point, Aquila and Priscilla had come to believe in Jesus, and they ministered alongside of Paul in spreading the gospel in Corinth later in Ephesus, and then back in Rome again when they were allowed to return there. In fact, when Paul wrote to the church in Rome, he greeted them in particular and asked the church in Romans 16, 3-5 to greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risk their lives for me, he said. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Paul calls them both his co-workers in Christ Jesus. And though we're never told how they both risk their own necks for Paul, he was most grateful for what they had done. While in Corinth, Paul apparently made tents during the week and preached in the synagogues at the weekends. Verse 5 says, When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on I will go to the Gentiles." then paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of titius justus a worshipper of god crispus the synagogue leader and his entire household believed in the lord and many of the corinthians who heard paul believed and were baptized When Silas and Timothy arrived, it is thought that they brought a gift of support for Paul from Philippi, which enabled him to dedicate himself exclusively to preaching. He focused on the Jews of Corinth, teaching that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, just as it had in the past— Opposition quickly arose against Paul's message, but this time when the Jews opposed him, he shook out his clothes in protest against them. This was a symbolic act often used at that time as a way of totally separating yourself from someone else, of removing any association with them. In doing this, Paul was very clearly illustrating the fact that they'd missed their opportunity. He told them that their blood would be on their own heads. In other words, they would be responsible for their own fate. Paul had carried out God's commands, but they had refused to heed his warning. There would be consequences for their decision, but Paul would not have to suffer them. He was now going to focus on the Gentiles, and with that, he left the synagogue to go next door to the house of Titius Justus, a Gentile who worshipped God. Interestingly, the synagogue leader, a man by the name of Crispus, Followed Paul. He and his entire family believed in Christ, as did many others in that city. Can you imagine the danger that Paul was in now that even the synagogue leader had become a follower of Christ? But Luke reports in verse 9 that one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision Do not be afraid, keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of the Lord. God encouraged him, telling Paul not to be afraid, to continue to speak and not be silent, for the Lord was with him, and assured Paul that he was not alone." You and I would do well to remember that. Should we ever face rejection and hardship for sharing our faith? We are not to fear, for God is with us and never will he leave us nor forsake us. May God bless you. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.